Good evening. Good evening. It's good to have you here tonight. You look like a flock of chickens. You're just scattered everywhere. I mean, you are just about evenly distributed in every corner of the room. Someday I'm going to sing you the song, The Back Pew Baptist. I'm a back pew Baptist, don't you know? To the front, I just won't go. Because down in front, I might be stirred by the things that I have heard. That's for all of you in the back half of the room. <laughs> Acts chapter 27 tonight. Our assignment tonight is to get through one and a half chapters of Acts. This morning it took me 40 minutes to go through one verse, okay? So they tell me if I go too long, the battery's going to die in this microphone. So if it looks like I'm... If it... Not to, not to take you with <laughs> Acts chapter 27 tonight. I'm not going to take the time to read through these narratives. Um, I wish we had the time. I encourage you to do it. The beautiful thing about narrative scripture is the actual historical account of the real events, the people, the things, the places, the times the struggles, the difficulties, the victories, and the story tells itself. Obviously, we, we aren't going to say amen and go home right now, but um, this, you read the story, it tells itself. I can't add to the line of history. We're going to look at some of the significance of the events, uh, clarify some things along the way, but I, I trust that you are reading through the book of Acts, that you will continue. And if you haven't read Acts chapter 27 and the first half of 28, if you haven't read anything in Acts, read this chapter. It's a, a story about a shipwreck at sea. There is something about the sea and the stories of seafaring men who have, uh, that has captured the imagination of many generations throughout history. I've had a book on my shelf for some time um, called Sea Fights and Shipwrecks. I don't know where I picked it up. It's a used book, and uh, it's a maritime uh, naval history, and I just uh, it caught my eye one time. Well, I've had it for years. I haven't read it. And with uh, the shingles this last month, there was that first week my energy level was so low, I'll, all I did pretty much for several days was sit in a chair and read. So I started that book. Shipwrecks have captured the, the imagination and attention of, of uh, mankind. Many movies have been made, television programs. Here on the Great Lakes, we live on the shores of some of the most dangerous waters in the world. There are 10,000 shipwrecks in the Great Lakes, mostly because people sailed too late into the fall or too early in the spring, which by the way, is exactly what happens in this passage. They're on the water too late in the sailing season. And so if you haven't read it, I encourage you to do that. We are simply going to go down through it and walk through some of the places they visited, some of the things that happened. If you have a map in your Bible of uh, Paul's journey on this uh, journey to Rome, you can follow it. Uh, you can find it online. You can find many places that have a diagram of where he went. 
Uh, we're not going to do that tonight unless you want to follow along on the map. Um, you can, you're welcome to do that. I encourage you to do it at some time so you see how they did this. As, the, as Acts chapter 27 opens, uh, it has been decided that uh, because Paul appealed to Caesar, they were going to send him to Caesar. They now had an obligation, Festus had an obligation now to get him to Rome under guard to, either, to both protect him and to guarantee that he would show up before Caesar. But as we go through this chapter, we find some very interesting things. Paul is being very well treated here in this passage, not, uh, not like you would ordinarily find a prisoner being treated. He's able to bring some companions with him. He's treated well by the centurion in charge. But this is probably part of a political move on Festus's part. Festus is sending to Caesar a man who is, he believes, innocent. And so he is going to take up Caesar's time for a baseless charge. Now, you don't do that. You don't send Caesar a case where there's no case. That's just not, it's not good for you. That's the bottom line here. It's not good for Festus. So I think what is happening here is that Festus has given the centurion some instructions to treat Paul well because the sentence probably went something like this from Festus. Listen, if you get this guy safely to Rome and he puts in a good word for you and I, it'll be better for us. All right? There, there probably was something like that going on because of the uncommon way uh, that this centurion treated Paul with uh, uh, kindness and so on. But anyway, they, they are in Caesarea on the coast of Israel, as we showed in the pictures last week, and they now set sail on a ship that has stopped into the harbor, and they proceed north. They're, they're going to sail along the coast. Evidently, this was a smaller vessel. Um, there, Israel does not have a lot of harbors now. It never did. Um, but but um, Tel Aviv and, uh, and then Haifa to the north and Caesarea is in between those. And so these smaller vessels, instead of sailing out across the Mediterranean, they would kind of hug the coastline and go from port to port. And that would be like a ferry boat. Uh, they would be carrying cargo and whatever else, but, but as long as they could cram another body on board, you could pay them and they would be glad to take you somewhere. Uh, that's uh, how Jonah got himself into trouble, right? A passenger on some kind of a, a freight vessel. And so the centurion puts Paul and those who are with him on a vessel and they start to sail. Now, you'll notice in verse 1, it says, it was decided that we would sail for Italy. I believe it's uh, back in chapter 21, the last time the word we was used, the last time Luke included himself in the narrative, because Paul has been in jail. But now that Paul is being released from jail, Luke now joins him on board the ship, along with uh, Aristarchus also from Thessalonica, we read according to verse 2. And there were some other prisoners. We don't know how big the ship was. We don't know what it was carrying. We don't know how many prisoners. But there was a centurion put in charge of Paul and these other prisoners, and he was from the Augustan cohort. His name was 
Julius. The Augustan cohort was a specially assigned group of centurions and their men. A centurion was a, a, an officer over 100 Roman soldiers. And the Augustan um, uh, line of officers was originally established in order to oversee the shipment of grain for the military and other military supplies. And so they would often be on sailing vessels accompanying a freight to guarantee that it got safely to its place, to make sure no one sailed away with it, to make sure no one stole it, to make sure when it landed in the harbor it got safely dispensed to the troops, and these men were in charge. They ended up over time being used by the government for a great many errands, including here obviously the transfer of prisoners. And so this man uh, is a man of responsibility. It's interesting to me that in the New Testament, we meet a number of Roman centurions, and all of them, or at least almost all of them, are men who are responsive to the gospel or at least friendly to the messengers of the gospel. They're men who help. They're men who believe. We've, we've met a number of them over time as we've read through our New Testament. So you have this on tourists getting on a ship. They are embarking in verse 2. The ship is out of Adramidia, which is in northwest Turkey. That was its home port. It is a, it's a coastal vessel. It goes not venturing out across the Mediterranean, but sailing along the coast. And evidently he had, they had come out of northern Turkey and sailed down through Aegean Sea, across the southern coast of Asia Minor, over to Israel, probably all the way down across Israel, probably to Egypt, dropping off cargo, picking up stuff. They'd picked up stuff there. Now they're bringing it back, and they're working their way back to their home port. Uh, they, and they did this, no doubt, on a cycle of time. And this was probably this ship's last trip for the season. They're on the way home. So it's going in the right direction, but it's not going to Rome. So we already know that Paul is going to have to transfer from this ship to another one if he's going to get to Rome. But at least he's on the way. He's going in the right direction. So they're hopping along the coast. Verse 3 says they put in at Sidon, about 60, 70 miles up the coast from Caesarea. And there in Sidon, they evidently put in long enough to unload or up upload some cargo uh, to take on supplies. And Julius, the officer, treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. The word for care there is actually a, a medical term. Um, Paul perhaps was ill, not well, after two years of, of imprisonment, um, had some kind of a medical issue. Even though Luke is with him, perhaps Luke is trying to get some supplies inside, and we don't know what's going on, but there, there's something there that, that Paul needs. And he is allowed to go and visit some of the believers there in the church at Sidon, encouraged and has fellowship there. And uh, the next day, then they put out to sea in verse 4. They sail under the, under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. Now, if you look at Cyprus on the map, it is south of Turkey. We call it Turkey today, south of the continent of Asia Minor. And when you and I think of sailing under Cyprus, we think, well, they sailed south of Cyprus. No, what that means is they sailed north of Cyprus in the, in the sea between Cyprus and the mainland where they would be protected from the, bat, the heavy winds by both masses of land. And so they would sail that coastal channel north of Cyprus back and forth uh, as a, 
uh, an area that was protected. The mountainous regions of Turkey uh, provide a great deal of protection along the coast there for the sailing vessels. By the time of the Romans and Paul here when he's sailing, it's a very safe journey. 150 years before that, no one made it through there safely because the whole area was infested with pirates. The whole coast was loaded with pirates, but the Romans had come in and taken care of the problem with the pirates and opened it up for all of these commercial vessels. And so these commercial vessels have really um, had a free, free market uh, to go back and forth. They sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. The winds are picking up. This is probably late summer when they pick up this journey. If we're, if we're correct in thinking that this was 59 AD, uh, Festus, I believe, came to power in the summer of 59. And uh, with a little time lapse there for him to take care of these arrangements, it's probably later in the summer of 59 when Paul's getting on this ship. Toward the end of the summer, you're getting close to the end of the season when it's safe to sail. Verse 5, it describes them traveling along the south coast of Turkey. Mentions Cilicia, Pamphylia. These are places where Paul had landed on his earlier missionary journeys. They ended up in Myra, in Lycia. Myra was a major port for the grain ships of the Roman Empire. And that's exactly what they find in verse 6. An Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put them aboard. He also went with them, apparently. It's the same centurion later on. We find out later on in verse 38 that this is indeed a grain ship. Now, if you think of the Mediterranean world and uh, that ancient Roman Empire, the northern coast of Africa along the southern edge of the Mediterranean is all Saharan desert. It's vast desert. There's one green stripe in that desert, and that's the Nile River. The Nile River in the ancient world was the breadbasket of the ancient world. The dependability of the flood cycle of the Nile River provided a certainty of food supply through thousands of years of ancient history. There was a period of time when the Nile actually uh, got dry for a while, not completely dry, but it did not flood like, they, like, like it normally did. And, and it was known all over the ancient world. But the Nile River provided vast tonnage of grain, and Rome had developed its own problem by now. As the Roman armies conquered the ancient world, they kept bringing back slaves to Rome. And, and uh, these slaves were free labor. All you had to do was feed people, put a roof over their head, and you had free labor. And so they were bringing in tens of thousands of slaves from the battles they had won over a hundred years and more. And, this, and, and uh, the, the, the wealthy people were buying the slaves, and the middle class were buying slaves, and the politicians had slaves, and the government projects uh, would raise a whole army of slaves to go build an aqueduct or a bridge or a road or something. And you had hundreds of thousands of slaves in the Roman Empire now have displaced the working people of the Roman Empire. And unemployment is at an astronomical high all across the Roman Empire. 
So what do people do when they're unemployed? They go to the city, hoping to find work. The city of Rome had hundreds of thousands of unemployed people with no means of support. So the government of Rome bought shiploads of grain and fed them. You had the beginning of a welfare state. Rome could hardly buy grain fast enough to feed its people. They had a royal fleet of grain ships. They contracted with private ship owners to bring grain to uh, Rome. They also had to buy shiploads of grain to supply all of their military that were scattered all over the Roman Empire. And these grain ships would sail from Alexandria, Egypt, the main port at the mouth of the Nile River, and they would then sail out across the Mediterranean to all these various places. Now, these grain ships were not exactly sleek and fast. They were not highly maneuverable. This is basically a floating barge with a sail on it. All right, they did not make great speed. They were not easily maneuverable. They, they just were built to carry a lot of weight. The one that Paul ends up getting on has 276 people on it. 276 people. There were about 130 people on the Mayflower. So there's twice as many people on this ship 2,000 years ago as the Europeans could get on a sailing vessel, and, and it was crowded on the Mayflower. We're not talking about a little ship here. We're talking about a good-sized vessel. Just keep that in mind as we go on. So they get on this Alexandrian ship, and they start to go. And it says, when we had sailed slowly... Verse 7, for a good many days. And with difficulty had arrived at Snidus. And that's, that's out on the very tip of Turkey, on the southwest corner of Turkey. So they haven't even gotten past Turkey yet. And they've got to get all the way to Rome. I, if, I re, if I figured it out right uh, at one time, the journey from Caesarea to Rome, the way Paul went, was around 1,500 plus miles all right, so in good weather, it would not have taken an incredibly long time, but here they hit either low winds or winds blowing the wrong direction, whatever it is. But it says with difficulty, they arrived at the southwestern harbor of Turkey. So now they have to make a decision. They're, the next stop is either somewhere in Greece or farther west. They're getting to the end of the summer. <clears throat> They've made slow progress. And they decide, well, we're going to head south and go around Crete. I think they went farther south probably to try to pick up some better winds. So they, in verse 7, they sail out of uh, the last harbor in Turkey and head off toward Crete, which is another island, a, very large, a much larger island in uh, the Mediterranean. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, which was in the city of Lycia. So Fair Havens was uh, one of the stopping places on the southern shore of Crete. And so far, uh, some of you are thinking, oh my, uh, maps and 
dates and history and oh my. Hang on. We're about to go for the ride of your life on this one. So far, it's been slow sailing on this grain ship. Now, these grain ships went slow to start with. So when it says the grain ship was making slow progress, that's slow. And you don't have time to waste because it's the end of the summer and the fall storms are coming. And that's not good news for any sailor, especially in the major storm season. Okay, so this is like booking a Caribbean cruise around, uh, you know, the middle of September. You might, have a good, you might have a good trip. You might have nice weather. But you just might get really surprised, too. Notice verse 9 says, when considerable time had passed. They're sitting in the harbor at Fair Havens. Why in the world are they waiting there? I suspect it's because the, the winds were so calm. There's no air. Nothing moving. These, they didn't have oars. They didn't have motors of any kind. They were dependent totally on the wind. And they're waiting for the winds to pick up in, in the right direction and the right strength to take off from Fair Havens and try to keep moving toward Rome. A lot of time goes by, and they're getting closer and closer to the storm season. It says, verse 9, the voyage was now danger since even the fast was already over. That would probably refer to the fast uh, related to the Day of Atonement, the Jewish fast at, at the Day of Atonement. And in um, October of 1959, uh, of, yeah, 15. October of 59, uh, the day of, of uh, atonement was the 5th of October. So now we're into October, and dangerous weather is, is very much upon them. And Paul began to admonish them in verse 10, Men, I perceive that the voyage will be certainly with, certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by, what was, than by what Paul was saying. And verse 12 adds this, Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached the decision to put out to sea from there to try to reach Phoenix, which was a harbor 40 miles to the southwest along the coast of Crete, still staying under the protection of Crete, but trying to get to a harbor that was bigger and more well protected for the winter. It also uh, was a harbor where the sailors and the people on the ship would be able to have uh, more amenities and uh, possibilities for entertainment and so on during the winter. Phoenix was a dead-end kind of a harbor. There, there was just not much there. The captain of this ship is thinking about the fact that if, if we have to stay here for three or four months, number one, I have to pay all these guys. Number two, my cargo is sitting here in a ship, maybe getting moldy. Number three, there's nothing here for my sailors to do. What are we going to do for three months, four months? Plus, it's not the best harbor for protection for a big ship. But Fair Havens is only 40 miles away. Now, if you leave at dawn, you could get there by dark. 
So, all those factors considered, despite Paul's warning, the centurion says, let's roll, let's go, let's go, down the coast. So, verse 13, on, on a certain day, a moderate south wind came up, and supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close in shore. They're not trying to venture out across the Mediterranean. They're just trying to get to a safe harbor for the winter. It's only 40 miles away, a few hours away. But, oh, what an interesting word. What a story changer. But before very long, they're rushed down from the land, the very land that was supposed to be protecting them from the winds, down off the slopes of Crete comes a violent wind called Uraquilo. This is, uh, uh, Ura is east and Quilo is Latin for north. So this is a nor'easter. A nor'easter, a storm cycling counterclockwise, a low-pressure system around here. We call them hurricanes. In the Pacific, they call them typhoons. It's the same thing. It's the same monster. Paul and this band of men on this ship are caught in a typhoon. When they're caught in the typhoon, they're just offshore of Crete, probably within sight of the island of Crete, and only have 40 miles to go. But in verse 15, it says, The ship was caught in the wind and could not face the wind. We gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. Now, I have never sailed anything longer than 21 feet, and I've never sailed on the ocean. So I'm speaking only from what I know um, from reading and talking to people. Some of you perhaps have been out on storms in the ocean and, and know what it's like to have the deck heaving up and down and back and forth under your feet. Uh, I, I not only have not experienced that, I'm not necessarily interested in, in pursuing it right away. So, so there's a basic principle when you're sailing a ship or in any ship, but we're talking about sailing vessels here, when you're in a storm, you either want to be facing directly into the wind or you want to be facing directly away from the wind. When you ride those waves, you want to be going straight up the wave and straight down the wave. Whether you're going away from the wind or toward the wind, it doesn't matter. You want to be facing those waves head on. If you get turned sideways to the waves, well, some of you maybe have done that in a canoe in white water and know what happens. You can get rolled over very quickly. In December of 1944, the United States Third Fleet had just come off of three months of continuous battle, ending up with the Battle of Lady Gulf in the Philippines, taking island after island, marching across the Pacific, working with the Marines, landing them on various islands, aircraft carriers supporting all the landing, the, uh, the uh, ships fighting against the Japanese Imperial Navy, and they had just come off of a three-month period of time when they were running out of supplies, they all needed fuel, and a fleet of tankers was in the area, and they had 
arranged to connect with these tankers and resupply, refuel, get the mail, and get all caught up and ready to run again uh, back into the battle. But in December 17th and 18th, the third fleet ran smack into a typhoon. Their weathermen on board the ships did not pick up on the signs. It, it just came upon them suddenly. They did not have time to get away from it. They didn't have time to sail away from it. Uh, they also didn't have enough fuel to try to outrun it. Most of the ships were low on fuel. And so on December 17th and 18th, the U.S. Third Fleet in the Pacific faced one of the worst typhoons that's ever been recorded in human history. Barometric pressure dropped to 27.3 bars, one of the lowest recordings in maritime history. Winds of 150, 130, 150 miles an hour were recorded on some of the ships. The winds were blowing so hard that it, it blew weather equipment and radar masts off of many of the ships. 176 different airplanes were blown off of the aircraft carriers, even though they were cabled down tight on the decks. Damage was done to much of the fleet. But the worst thing that happened was that three of the destroyers got turned sideways in the wind and could not pull around against the wind. The wind was so fierce they could not control the ship and they turned sideways to the waves, and three destroyers were sunk by the storm. 790 sailors lost their lives to a storm after surviving some of the most severe naval battles of history. These storms are incredibly fierce. The same thing happened again six months later on June the 5th, 1945, the Third Fleet after supporting the invasion at Okinawa, got caught in another storm just like it. Not as many men died. No ships were sank, sunk, sinked, whatever they did. They didn't do it. But a lot of damage was done to the fleet. There is a rule on the sea when you're in a storm, you stay facing the wind or, or drive before it. So that's what they chose to do. They're trying to drive before the wind, run before the wind. They were able to run under the shelter of a small island off of Crete, and they were able then to get the ship's boat under control. This would be the one lifeboat that they had dragging on a rope behind the ship. Uh, in those days, when you pulled into a harbor, you weighed anchor in the harbor, and then in order to get to shore, you used the rowboat. So this is some kind of a rowboat for getting the crew back and forth to shore before you pull into the docks and unload your wares. And they would always pull this boat behind them from place to place, and in most of the weather, that thing was fine. But if you're in a storm and that thing gets filled with water and sinks, there's two problems. Number one, it becomes a drag on your ship, and number two, you don't have a lifeboat. Well. 276 people in one rowboat is probably not a good thing anyway, but you get, you get the point, right? So they get into the protection of this island just long enough to, to get this boat on board and lash it down in verse 16. They hoisted it up, and then it says they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship. Um, I'll just say a word about what Luke is writing here. Luke has written one of the most complete descriptions of a naval engagement in a storm in ancient history. Naval historians study this passage 
to look at the maritime principles and practices of the ancient world. That's how accurate Luke is in his writing. That's what he's noticing, he's seeing. He's a, a keen observer of history, and he records it for us. What they would do here is, is they would take ropes, and they would throw ropes out in front of the ship, holding on to both ends, and let it go under the ship. And then they would tighten that rope, and they would actually be lashing the boat, the bottom of the boat, to support the boards and to hold the hull together. And they would put both ends of that rope then in a winch, all of the ropes they would bring to the anchor winch, and they would winch those ropes tight, and they would, it would be like putting a, a net around the ship to try to tighten all the seams and the boards to help hold the ship together. One of the problems in a storm like this is a ship can actually be broken in two, including a steel, a modern steel ship can be broken in two by these storms. So they're doing everything they can to fight this storm. They're afraid that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis. These are uh, coral reefs and, and various kinds of reefs off the north coast of Africa. Well, if you're in a northeastern storm and you're being blown toward the south, what's south of the Mediterranean? Africa. How many of you would like to have an unplanned crash on the reefs of Africa? No, thank you. All right, let's try to avoid that. So what do they do? They let down the sea anchor. And in this way, they let themselves be driven along. There were various ways they would rig a sea anchor, but they would throw something out into the sea, whether it was a sail or uh, anything else, anchors on a rope, and that would drag in the water behind them, and it would keep the ship either facing into or directly away from the wind. If you threw a sea anchor out the back, the wind would blow you around, and you would be headed downwind. If you threw an anchor out the front, you would be facing the dragging weight, and you would be facing into the wind. This is to keep, right now, all they're trying to do is survive this storm and stay afloat. That's what they're saying. This is a severe storm. So in the meantime, we're being pitched up and down, tossed back and forth. The decks are rolling every way the decks can roll. The passengers are who knows where, down below, hanging on for dear life as they get thrown back and forth, up and down. And the next day, verse 18, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. They began dumping the cargo overboard. Now that would make the ship lighter, which can be a good thing in a storm or it can be a bad thing in the storm. They believed that the reason those three destroyers sank during World War II in that storm is because as these destroyers would use up the fuel in their, di their diesel fuel out of their tanks, in order to stay stable in the water, they would refill those tanks with seawater, and that would keep them stabilized. But these ships were coming in to be refueled, and they had just pumped all the seawater out of all of their tanks, so they are floating high in the water. They're top-heavy. And as they launch back into the storm and abandon the idea of trying to get refueled, they don't have time to re-pump seawater back into their fuel tanks before they capsize because they're top-heavy. So these men are not trying to throw out the grain just to lighten the ship. I think what's happening is they're taking on water. 
They probably have pumps running or bucket brigades. They're trying to get the water out of the boat, but they can't get the water out of the boat as fast, fast enough. So everybody else that's left is helping carry bags of wheat or buckets of wheat and throw it overboard. They're just trying to get rid of weight. They just are trying to stay on top of the ocean instead of going for a submarine ride. The next day, having jettisoned the cargo, on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. Various kinds of equipment uh, for the ship, extra rigging, extra rope, and so on. Verse 20, the sun and stars did not appear for many days. This was no small storm that was assailing us. And so what happened? From then, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. For veteran sailors, that's an amazing statement. The Apostle Paul, remember, is already an experienced uh, passenger. He's ridden three ships into the waves already. Uh, in case you didn't catch that, he's already been shipwrecked three times. So he knows, he has a pretty good idea what's going on, and th this crew has given up all hope. So Paul preaches a message, a brief message in verse 21. The Lord has personally reassured him, appearing to Paul by angel. Again, the Lord has reassured Paul that he is going to stand before Caesar in Rome. He, he assured him of that in Jerusalem. He assures him of that here, and Paul shares that with these men. Now, how in the world Paul can communicate with this group on the tossing decks of a ship in the middle of a raging storm, I'm not sure. But that's what it says. He, he, he communicated this message. So he urges them to keep up their courage. Uh, you'll probably notice, though, in verse 21, not after he happens to slip in and I told you so. You notice that? Yeah, I told you. You should have listened to me. Verse 22, yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. That was good news to everybody except the owner. No one's going to die. Now that's an amazing statement. In the middle of a hurricane, in a ship that's run out of ideas, and is being driven toward the shoals of Africa. Verse 27 says, 14 nights, two weeks. Friends, that's a long time. That is a long time to be in a storm. I've never heard of a storm lasting that long. But about midnight, the sailors began to sense that they were approaching land. They probably heard the waves crashing on the rocks or on the beaches. So they took soundings, found it to be 20 fathoms. There's some discussion about what a fathom was in New Testament times. A more modern fathom is six feet. Um, but at any rate, they take soundings. They let a rock down on a rope to see if you can find the bottom. And it, if you're out in the middle of the, of the sea and you can find the bottom, that's not a good thing. Just letting you know, okay? So, so they take a sounding, and then they take another sounding, and there's less water under them. What does that mean? It means we're headed for land. All right? Now, in one sense, that's good, because if they can safely get into the land, they might make it. 
But the bad news is if they can't control the ship and they just go smashing into the land and there's rocks and reefs, then that's bad news. So verse 29, fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. So now they take four anchors. That's a lot of anchors. I don't, I don't, they, they must have made, they must have used something, rigged up something for an anchor because most ships don't carry four. But they, they drop four anchors out the back, probably letting out a lot of rope. And what they're hoping is those anchors will catch and drag in the dirt, in the, in the rocks, so that the ship won't go crashing into the shore. And then when daylight comes, they can assess the situation and see how they can try to maneuver to get into safety. But, verse 30, some of the sailors are like, we're going to get out of here. So they are trying to untie the lifeboat, say, we're close to land, let's get the lifeboat, let's start getting some guys ashore, and they try to leave. So they try to escape in the lifeboats, and Paul warns the centurion and, and says, don't let these guys leave, because unless these men remain in the ship, we will not all be saved. And, and then an amazing thing happens in verse 32. The soldiers cut away the ropes of the boat and let it fall away. The only lifeboat on board. And at Paul's word, they cut the rope and dropped the lifeboat in the sea. And that's amazing to think about. Verse 33, Paul again speaks to them early in the morning, almost dawn, encouraging them to eat something. Listen, you begin 14 days without eating. Probably everyone was so seasick they didn't want to eat anything. But he encourages them to have some food because, he says in verse 34, not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. And so he breaks bread with them, give thanks to God in the presence of all. He broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and all took bread. Verse 37, all of us in the ship were 276 persons. That's a lot of people. And they're all listening to Paul. And Paul is telling them, no one is going to die. Now, at this point, that's good news, but do you believe it? After they're standing on shore and they count heads and they still have 276 people, now the people have a little bit different perspective on Paul. This guy had an angel talk to him and said, none of us are going to die. And guess what? We're all here. The Lord is creating a situation where he has a captive audience. He's on the island with these people for several weeks or months, and, and, he, he, and God is doing miraculous things. Verse 38, they try to lighten the ship by throwing the wheat into the sea. They're, they're just trying to jettison more cargo. Verse 39, they see a bay with the beach, and they say, all right, let's try to cast off the anchors and steer it in there. They hoist the sail, verse 40, and come to a grinding halt on a reef within sight of land. They run aground. And at this point, the soldiers, being good guards that they are, remember the Roman policy. 
in an emergency situation where there's a possibility that, that prisoners might escape, what do you do? You kill the prisoners. If a prisoner escaped a Roman guard, the Roman guard was sentenced to that prisoner's sentence and punishment, whatever it was. So this is serious business. The soldiers are ready to kill the prisoners. But the centurion, verse 43, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention. Again, why would this centurion be sensitive to Paul? Why would he care about Paul? There, there's something here that is unusual. A lot of centurions would just said, yep, let's get it done. Take care of it. But Paul is obviously under God's providential protection as well as the kindness of this centurion. And then the centurion commands everybody to jump overboard, get the land. People grabbed a hold of planks, anything else that would float, and they all made it to shore, found out that they were on the island of Malta, what we call Malta today. And as all coastal towns and harbor villages will do when seafaring men are in need, they did everything they could to help. The people immediately start coming out of their homes and they start building a bonfire on the beach. Um, that must have been some bonfire to warm up 276 silk and wet people. They stop and think about that. <laughs> I think they burned down every piece of wood on the island. Uh, no doubt some of these people were taking them into their homes. It says they received them and uh, a, a great description here of, of great kindness. Uh, history is full of the records of people in towns and cities coming to the aid of those who are in trouble. Uh, that is nothing, nothing new. Something happens here, and I'm going to run through the rest of this quickly. Some amazing things happen, some miraculous things happen, which give Paul a listening audience on the island of Malta. Now, in, in Paul's travels, he never said in his epistles, I want to go to Malta and preach there and establish a church. But God wanted him to. Now, we, we've been talking about a nor'easter. If you, if you take a map and look at where southwestern Turkey is, and sail down to Crete, and then get caught in the nor'easter, there's only one place to end up, and that's in Africa. All right? But they're 14 days in the nor'easter, and they end up sailing from Crete to Malta, an island that's 17 miles long and 9 miles wide. And they come smack on it without a compass or a rudder being used. They're just trying to stay alive. What do you think of that? You think God had something to do with that? No one can sail due west in the nor'easter. But they did. That's where they ended up. So this bonfire is being built. Paul helps out. He goes over, grabs a bundle of sticks, and throws them on a fire. And as he does that, a viper comes out of that probably out of that pile of sticks or because uh, he's thrown them onto the fire, a viper comes out because of the heat, fastened itself on his hand. Now, a viper is a word for a poisonous snake. I don't know what kind of a poisonous snake. This is not a little garden snake. This is not a black snake, a rat snake, a milk snake. This is a poisonous snake, and it latches onto his hand. And so we see a, this venomous snake bite, but we see the superstition of the people. Verse 4 
they think, oh man, no doubt this man is a murderer because even though he's been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He's going to die. God is going to get him one way or the other. And they're standing there watching Paul, waiting. There's no medical aid here. They're just waiting for him to die. And he doesn't. Nothing happens. He shook the creature off into the fire, and he suffered no harm. They were expecting him to swell up and fall down, dead. They waited a long time. Nothing happened. So then the superstition kicks in again. They change their mind and say, he must be a god. No, maybe God's just doing something miraculous here. Maybe God's preserving Paul's life. i got to tell you, uh, something similar happened to me, not with a poisonous snake, thank you, Lord. When I was in high school, I worked at a camp in the summertime, and we built bonfires for each evening's program. And uh, we used slab wood from a sawmill. And, and uh, we would go over and grab an armload of slab wood, carry it over to the middle of the field and stack it up and get a bonfire ready. We did this every day. And one day, I went over and picked up an armload of wood and brought it back and laid it down and started picking up the pieces and putting them on the fire. And this two-foot snake crawled out from between the pieces that I had just carried over. Now, that's a little unnerving. <laughs> but it was green with a red stripe down the side. I don't know what kind of snake that is, but I was glad it wasn't a copperhead or a rattlesnake because he would have been ticked and I probably would have been in bad shape. So I've always, I've always been interested in this story since then. I've been very grateful for God sparing me because I'm sure that I wouldn't have been able to shake it off and just walk away like Paul did. God does a miracle on the shore in front of these islanders. And then there's a public official who treats these sailors kindly, helps them find lodging and so on, takes care of them for the three months that they're there, and entertains them the first three days. In verse 8, the, this man's father is sick. He's in bed, afflicted with a recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. And after this happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. Paul wasn't planning on having a ministry opportunity, but God is opening the door. You can believe the word spread across this island very quickly. And, and not only does Paul have a captive audience... The audience has a captive apostle. He's not going anywhere this winter. He's not sailing anywhere until next March. Maybe next April. And so they take advantage of it. Verse 10, they honored with many marks of respect. And when they were ready to set sail finally, this is after winter, they supplied us with all we needed. The island people just came and provided everything that the people on this ship needed to be able to get on another ship and be on their way. Well, the rest of the story, the rest of the trip was basically uneventful. And I always like it when I travel uneventfully. None of these airport overnight 
six hour delay, three hours on the tarmac, 95 degrees in the shade kind of, you know, none of those kind of, don't you like it when travel just, there's no story there. Amen. We got home. Everything's fine. <clears throat> That's just the way it's good. So at the end of three months, they got on another Alexandrian ship, another grain ship, which had wintered at the island and made their way. Some stops on the way. They get to the harbor uh, where the road leads up to Rome. And in verse 14, there they found um, some brethren were invited to stay with them for seven days. The centurion allows Paul to stay with these brethren for seven days before then they start uh, walking up the road to Rome. Rome is not a coastal town, it's inland. And the brethren, when they heard us, verse 15, came there as far as the market of Apius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, <clears throat> he thanked God and took courage. And so they walked from the seaport up to the city of Rome. <clears throat> but the Apostle Paul has unscheduled stops. Of course, none of this is in his plan, but it's certainly in God's plan. You see, again, though, wherever Paul goes, he's willing to enter into gospel ministry. It, it doesn't matter where God puts you. There you are. So, so be all you can be wherever he puts you. Be all there. Be all in. Be all about it. Be all about the opportunity that God gives you with the gospel. It is a story of divine providence. It is an amazing story of ancient maritime tenacity and skill on the open seas. It is a hair-raising adventure. It would make a great movie if they did it accurately and well. And it was an amazing way of watching God work at getting the gospel to a place that needed the word of God. And Paul still ends up in Rome where God put him under house arrest. So next week, we have the opportunity to take a quick look at the first part of Paul's stay in Rome. As you read the book of Acts, or as you have read through the book of Acts in recent times, we have read about Paul, but a little bit here and there about Peter, James, the apostle who was martyred, a couple other Apostles mentioned here and there. But most of the work of the apostles is not in the book of Acts. We are told that Thomas made it as far east as India. We don't know who all went down to Egypt, but there was a thriving church in Egypt. There were churches all over the ancient world. We don't know who got there, who went there. Was it some of the dispersed Jews? Was it the apostles? Was it all of the above? The book of Acts is only a little fraction of the story. As God has taken the gospel and scattered it in the wind around the globe through the ages. God wants us to be like the proverbial dandelion seed head. You never know where those seeds are going to go. But God does. God knows each one. God use us where he puts us. Amen? Amen? Will you stand with me? We'll close in prayer.
Father in heaven, thank you for this account of these men, maybe women as well, on this ship. Thank you for giving us this account so that we know what Paul endured, so that we see how the gospel moved from place to place, so that we can see your providence. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this account. Father, as we write the story of our lives and record the events of our lives, may our story also echo with the sounds of seeds planted, of seed watered, of opportunities taken, of open doors before us, of God's good hand upon us as you lead us and guide us and take us from this place. Use us, Lord, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Go with the Lord.